Good evening and welcome to a Saturday night edition of Tisky Sour. We weren't sure whether we were going to hold on until Monday to do this show, but there is just so much going on. I mean, we couldn't possibly wait. Aaron Bastani, Aaron, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Michael. I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me back on a second consecutive night. We had a great show. So many people. Tonight's going to be better, bigger. Mm. Our, our big two focuses on the show to start with are going to be the results in Wales and then Scotland. We've got two great analysts on to talk about that and also um, the London mayority. Hopefully we'll have a bit more news um, for you later on. But for now, Labour might have had some miserable results in England, but in Wales, Mark Drakeford's party stands victorious. Welsh Labour have won 30 out of 60 seats in the Senate, just one short of a majority and matching their best ever result in the Welsh Parliament. Now, the final distribution of seats are as follows. So Labour are on 30 seats, which is up one from the last election. The Conservatives are on 16, which is up five. Plaid Cymru are on 13, which is up one, although it sounds like they're pretty disappointed with the result. And then you're saying, how, how are these all in positives? That's because UKIP have collapsed. They did have um, seven seats in the last parliament and they have all been redistributed. Um, looking at that, you might initially think, well, they've been mainly, mainly redistributed to the Conservatives. Why is everyone saying this is a success for Labour? Well, for Labour to have increased their vote share and um, increased the number of seats they have after so long in government is still a pretty impressive feat. Um, a lot of that success is being put down to the personality and the leadership of Mark Drakeford. He spoke to the BBC earlier about why he thinks Labour's good fortune is down to their record in government thought throughout that our biggest advantage is the fact that we have been in government here in Wales, demonstrating what you can do for progressive causes when you have the power and the authority to do that. Whereas our colleagues in England, often being in opposition, are able to put forward ideas, but they don't have that advantage of being able to point to the record of actual achievement that we can in Wales. So when we say in our manifesto that we will do other things for people in Wales in the future, people have a confidence of knowing that we've got a record of delivery here in Wales. So a record of delivery, and especially um, during the coronavirus pandemic. Now, to discuss the successes of Welsh Labour, I'm joined by Harriet Prothero-Soltani, um, who's joined us very recently on this show. So a privilege um, to have you back on today. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> The, the overwhelming narrative here is that Labour were re-elected because of their performance in government. People were satisfied with how they have governed the, the nation for the past five years. Is, is, is that the case? Is, is that why they were re-elected? And, and what are the successes, the achievements that people are most focusing on? It's an interesting point, the way that Drakeford has framed this in terms of the last five years, where, to be honest, I would say more in the last year, people have understood the value of devolution, what devolution is, who Mark Drakeford is, um, and how he's acted during this crisis. There's been a lot of points during the coronavirus crisis where Wales has differed from the, the route to England. And on those occasions, I think it politicised people, it gave people an understanding that in Wales, you know, we could do things differently some of the key issues, um, you know, some of the best vaccination rates in the world. At one point, we were second in the world. Of, I've had my vaccine. I'm 27. How on earth did that happen? Maybe it was a flu. Who knows? Um, but I also think that, like, the ability for this crisis to kind of 
uh, re-establish Welsh identity almost. Like he was doing press conferences every day uh, in the Welsh Parliament with big Welsh flags behind him. And it, it did become like an identitarian thing as well for a lot of people. So I think the coronavirus is the key measure of this, to be very frank. The things that he's done in government before coronavirus, I, I, I would be difficult to argue that they are the main factors going into this election. So do you think without the pandemic, it could have been a completely different story that we were telling about Wales and telling about Mark Drakeford? Yeah, I do definitely think that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about independence and the question about independence. Obviously, it's going to be the more urgent issue when it comes to Scotland, which we're going to talk about in a moment, but it's ever present in Wales as well. Um, so as we have described, Plaid Cymru had a disappointing night, even though they gained a seat, they were expecting and hoping um, to gain much more. Um, Mark Drakeford, who was obviously victorious, re-elected as First Minister. He today reasserted his opposition to Welsh independence. Let's take a look. Well, I think the pandemic has had a polarising effect to an extent on people's opinions. But when it came to the election, I think you could see clearly that the great bulk of opinion here in Wales remains attached to powerful devolution, where decisions that only affect people in Wales are only made by people in Wales, but where we continue to be part of a successful United Kingdom. Uh, and that's what the Labour Party offered in this election. Uh, both our commitment to devolution, but also our belief that the United Kingdom is better off for having Wales in it and that Wales is better off for being part of a successful United Kingdom. Mark Drakeford there saying that not only was this a mandate for our record in government, this is a mandate for our position on the constitutional status of Wales, which is that it should have strong rights in terms of devolution, but it shouldn't be independent. It should remain a part of a, of a United Kingdom. Harriet, do you see these election results as, um, I suppose, a, a confirmation of, of Labour's position or confirmation that Wales is not particularly interested at this point in time in going the same way as, as Scotland? No, I think this oversimplifies the picture because there are many independent supporters within the Labour Party. So me, for example, who voted Labour, I'm an ardent supporter of independence. So we can't map on in the same way that we can in Scotland, the electoral vote to the, the sentiment around um, independence. And as we've seen over the last year, yes, Cymru, for example, the biggest uh, independence body um, in Wales, at the beginning of January, they had 2,000 members. Uh, now, uh, January last year, this year in January, they had 18,000. And the spikes in membership for Yes Cymru and supporting the independence movement were around key issues during the pandemic. For example, Dominic Cummins, uh, the furlough being denied, etc. So I don't think it's 100% true for Mark Drakeford to say that this election has put the independence de uh, debate to bed because, as I said, 51% as well, this is a key statistic, in a YouGov poll last year, 51% of Labour voters in Wales support independence, right? That's a massive statistic. So yeah, it doesn't map on like it would with the SNP in Scotland. I mean, a big question people are asking today is how, how come Welsh Labour is more successful than English Labour or UK-wide Labour? Now, I suppose one thing people put forward is Mark Drakeford was a bit of a Corbynite. He's a proud socialist. Um, he has a very different attitude to politics and Keir Starmer. At the same time, I suppose what, what Starmerites would most likely say is that, you know, this isn't really about ideology. This is the fact that the coronavirus pandemic has rewarded incumbents. So Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, Boris Johnson in England and Mark Drakeford in Wales, they've all increased their popularity during this period of time when people have really seen the necessity of, of government. And they're all 
in in, in varying ways benefiting from a, a vaccine bounce as well. Which one of those do you think it is? And I mean, if it is the latter, is there anything that Keir Starmer can learn from Mark Drakeford? Because he can't just magically put himself in the position of, of being an incumbent. So I think this kind of ties into something that was mentioned earlier about like the realms of possibility that Drakeford said himself, actually, is that I think for English voters not having had a Labour government for so long, the realms of possibility for the average voter of having a Labour government that could be progressive uh, are a lot different to us in Wales. We've had a Labour government for 20 years. Wales has voted Labour since 1918. I could just become a total nationalist and say to you it's because we're good socialist people, but I, I don't think that's the full answer. Um, I would say that Drakeford has definitely benefited from this uh, coronavirus uh, bounce, but also there is there is that history here. So, so, for example, when people talk about the Red Wall, it really winds me up that we only talk about the north of England. So if you look at South Wales, there is a solid red block that has stayed red ever since we had Kia Hardy down in the place. <laughs> and this remains until now. So I think there's a combination of the two. But if Kia is to to learn anything um, from Mark Drakeford, then I think the, the learning there is about the realities of like being in government and like showing how a Labour Party uh, can change people's lives. The fact that Mark Drakeford is a socialist is obviously like a huge benefit to, for us on the left to be able to like talk to, to members of the public about the Labour Party. But I don't know whether that is the, the key focus, to be honest. Finally, about Brexit, there was a very interesting stat tweeted out by Chris Curtis from Opinion today. Um, so he was showing a big difference between UK Labour and Welsh Labour is their ability to appeal to leave voters. So in the Welsh parliamentary elections, 50% of Remainers voted for Labour, whereas UK-wide, 52% of Remainers voted for Labour. In the Welsh parliamentary elections, 28% of Leavers voted for Labour, whereas in the UK-wide elections, only 19% of Leavers voted for Labour. So obviously, key to uh, one key reality, um, which can explain why Mark Drakeford was more successful than, than Keir Starmer, is Welsh Labour is able to appeal to more leavers. Do you think this is because people don't associate the devolved governments with the Brexit question? Because obviously, whether or not there would be a second referendum was something that was always going to be decided in, in Westminster. So you might have people who voted in 2019 for the Conservative Party because they're like, we don't want a second referendum, but felt safe voting for Labour now because they had no control over it. Or is it that Mark Drakeford as an individual and Welsh Labour as an organisation have sort of made more of an effort to be not so closely aligned with, with the Remain cause? Yeah, almost certainly. And yeah, the context of it being like a Westminster Parliament making those decisions rather than a Welsh Parliament definitely plays. But also, key factor here is that lots of the opposition parties, or one key opposition party, I'll just name them, abolish, were nuts. Like flat out nuts. So like the leave vote like wasn't going to go. We thought, oh my gosh, abolish is going to do really well. What will ha they've been completely wiped out because they are just wild, right? But uh, before, um, there's a good example in Merthyr Tidville. Actually, I wasn't going to come on this show and not talk about Merthyr Tidville because like whenever someone talks about Merthyr, I just get so happy inside. But anyway, uh, what we can see from Merthyr is there was a really heavy UKIP vote in the last. Um, 
Senate election, like UKIP made it into the parliament, it was a dagger to my heart, whatever. Um, but in Merthyr Tydfil, for example, that vote jumped back into Labour mainly, right? So 14% went back into Labour, 6% went into the Tories, right? So there's a real lack of like oppositional parties that would represent the Brexit vote that people would actually think were sane enough to vote for. So most of that vote's gone back to the Labour Party. And I think that kind of ties into that, like, you know, but why not why not the Tories? Because obviously in England it, it went straight to the Tories. Anyone who was you know, a historic Labour voter who voted Brexit, they said, well, the obvious party to vote for is, is the Conservatives. But it doesn't seem like that's happened to the same extent in Wales. Yeah, I think there's much less of an extent that Welsh Labour has got itself involved um, in the referendum discussion. So definitely that. And I think there is still that like real cultural. So, for example, in the Valleys, where we had some of the highest Leave votes, real cultural resistance to voting Tory. Like people would probably rather vote UKIP than Tory, which says a lot, but like whatever, we won't go there. <laughs> Very finally, Labour don't quite have a majority, do they? They've got 30 out of 60. So what happens now just on a sort of technical level is a minority government and they just have to peel off one. Yeah, last time they governed with the Lib Dem. So there was one Lib Dem, Kirsty Williams. Uh, she's gone now. There's another Lib Dem that's come in, Jane Dodds. So potentially there, there could be a discussion with Jane Dodds about working together. I don't know if that's going to happen, but that looks like the most likely option. Um, well, we will look out to see what Mark Drakeford does next. Um, nice to have some not miserable news. And always lovely to have you on the show, Harriet. Oh, thanks, Michael. You know, I don't think it's an unreasonable argument to say that the real story of this election isn't so much that Welsh Labour are essentially good and UK Labour essentially bad, but just that all of the governments have, have benefited from incumbent effects during the pandemic and therefore Welsh Labour are doing better electorally than, than UK Labour, than Keir Starmer's Labour. That seems to be the case, although we've obviously got a small sample. We've only got Scotland, England and, and Wales. So you know, sample of three, you're trying to make generalisable statements. I mean, maybe, maybe not. I think it's fair to say that Welsh Labour have had a better crisis than a better coronavirus crisis, for want of a better word, than Keir Starmer, clearly. Um, but I, I don't see why it's implausible or, you know, one could uh, sort of see a speculative alternative world where Keir Starmer managed the last 12 months far better than he has. I don't think that was inevitable. Look at, you know, you know the, the United States. Joe Biden made political hay of Donald Trump mismanaging the, the, the coronavirus crisis. So I, I don't think that's necessarily true. Uh, I, I, what we're seeing in English local elections, we'll talk about that more later, is actually people who are articulating a, a politics which identifies emotionally with place, whether it's Andy Burnham, whether it's, you know, the Tories and the bits of the Northeast, whether it's Actually, a whole gamut of politicians will talk about you know, Greens, Labour in parts of the South. They're doing really, really well. And people, I think people have had enough of local politics or nationalist politics outside of you know England, so Wales and Scotland. People have had enough of that being a springboard to a Westminster career. And I think they're rewarding people who are viewed as champions for local causes and sort of advancing their interests. And I think Mark Drakeford is definitely benefiting from that. I don't think that was inevitable. I think he's had a good crisis because he's had a good crisis. He was a, he responded well politically. That didn't happen from Keir Starmer. And then finally, the point that was made from Harriet about, well, actually, the right made this thing a de facto referendum on whether the, 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 the Welsh Parliament should exist at all. I think, you know, that, that you know, they, they, they wanted to polarise the debate, but actually they polarised it massively to the advantage of Welsh Labour. Serious political party talking about governance, overseeing a world-class response to the coronavirus. And you've got these kind of maniacs saying we want to scrap this whole body, which actually has performed really well by international standards 
in terms of responding to COVID. So I, I partly agree with what you just said, and I partly disagree. I suspect that Keir Starmer could have outperformed Marshall Labour. Of course, that's just my opinion. We don't know that. Yeah, I think yeah, it's a good point that we have a sample of three, which is quite difficult to come to any strong um, inferences from. Um, let's move straight on to Scotland. This is where the big constitutional showdown is going to happen over the next five years. It could absolutely shape British politics um, for the coming five years quite possibly will be the biggest issue of politics. Um, and that's because there is a pro-independence majority in Holyrood. Now, this was not a surprise to anyone. Um, what was more in question was whether or not the SNP would get an absolute majority. They haven't got that, but it could be just as impactful, um, the fact that they have a, a majority, the SNP, with the Greens for um, independence. Let's look at the results as they currently stand. We don't have the final results. We have the final results for the constituency vote. Um, so in Scotland, as in Wales, you get two votes. One is for a constituency representative and one is for a list. For the constituencies, um, the SNP got 47.7% of the vote. That's up 1.2 on the previous election. The Conservatives got 21.9, which is down 0.1. Um, Labour got 21.6%, which is down one, and the Lib Dems got 6.9%, which is down 0.9. Um, as I say, this is just for the constituencies. Um, what will happen now, I think this evening, we should know by, by midnight, I suppose, is that they will redistribute those list votes to try and top it up. So the, the ultimate outcome is, is fairly um, proportional to the, to the number of votes cast. Now, Nicola Sturgeon spoke to journalists this afternoon when after this projection came out after it was fairly clear um that the SNP wouldn't win an absolute majority but there would be a pro majority a pro independence majority in Holyrood um she was asked whether she would still seek an independence referendum in the first half of her five-year term I mean I've said and I meant it that Covid uh, getting through the Covid crisis has to come first and that is what uh, I will deliver I'll be getting back to work tomorrow to take the decisions to continue to steer us through the COVID crisis. But, you know, the, while we don't know the final tally of seats right now, it looks as if it is beyond any doubt that there will be a pro-independence majority in that Scottish Parliament. And by any normal standard of democracy, uh, that majority should have the commitments it made to the people of Scotland honoured. So for any Westminster politician who tries to stand in the way of that, I would say two things. Uh, firstly, you're not picking a fight with the SNP, you're picking a fight with the democratic wishes of the Scottish people. And secondly, you will not succeed. The only people who can decide the future of Scotland are the Scottish people. Uh, and no Westminster politician can or should stand in the way of that. I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Gray, a journalist at Scotia. Thank you so much for coming on. My question for you to begin is, you know, looking at those results, the immediate takeaway is very little has changed. Like, it's quite extraordinary to have an election where, after five years, that the two biggest parties end up with exactly the same seats as they had before. So the SNP on 63 and the Conservatives on 31, no change in, in either case. Is, is one story of Scottish politics at the moment actually a sort of a, a stability, uh, an unmoving stability? Yes. The media often gets bored with with um, repeat TV shows, and SNP landslides are a bit like a repeat TV show. Um, they've won a share of the vote on the the constituency that's um, unparalleled in UK politics since Harold Wilson in 1966, 
And so it's almost taken for granted that the SNP almost sweep the board in the majority of constituencies. What has changed since 2016, which was the, the previous similar um, headline outcomes, is Brexit and COVID, of course. And so the stakes were much higher in this election when, um, in terms of the constitutional question. Previously, you know, it was almost assumed that independence was was not on the on the ballot paper in 2016 because they just had the referendum two years previous. This was a different vote. Turnout was at a historic high in in the the Scottish election. For once, this was seen as a sort of top tier election, just as important as the UK general election. So turnout was up, and um, voting was up, um, particularly for the. The SNP got their most votes ever in an election. Um, and so independence and a referendum was on the ballot. And that's, of course, what makes that showdown with Westminster more significant now. Whether or not the SNP would get an absolute majority, they haven't. But there will be a pro-independence majority in Parliament because they'll be supported by the Greens, who actually had a very good election. Does the matter of an absolute majority for the SNP matter at all? Was that just a complete red herring? Um, or, or is there some sort of moral weight um, that has now been lost when it comes to the argument for for a second independence referendum. I think that was some daft expectation management, particularly from the the SNP and the leadership. Obviously, it's their interest for their party to get as much power as possible, um, and so they were trying to get their vote out, their core vote out, to just get as many um, votes on on both the constituency and list system, um, and that's always always been a very difficult hurdle for them to get over. So. Yeah, there's a bit of egg on their face for 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 setting that up as the the story for the for the election at the beginning. Um, let's look at what will happen now. Obviously, Nicola Sturgeon has, has has stood in this election to say if we get a pro independence majority, we should be able to have a second independence referendum. But it is within Boris Johnson's control on the Westminster government whether that is allowed to go forward. I want to show a clip now, which is of Environment Secretary George Eustace. Um, he was sent out as the representative for the UK government this morning to suggest that Boris Johnson had no intention of granting uh, Scotland a new referendum. The UK Parliament uh, is the only uh, only one that can actually uh, grant a referendum. That's always been uh, the case. Uh, we've had one recently, so they've had their referendum. It was described as a once-in-a-generation referendum. We really don't think there's a case uh, for another one. Uh, particularly as we try to come out of this pandemic and uh, focus on the issue of getting uh, economic recovery going and getting back in the saddle as a country as we come out of this uh, difficult pandemic. What's your take on on what will happen next? Obviously, the Conservatives seem to have no interest in granting a referendum. Nicola Sturgeon has said she has no interest in mounting an illegal referendum a la Catalonia. What happens? Is there just going to be stalemate? Well, first of all, lecturing Westminster Tories are the absolute God's gift to the case for independence and for the SNP and the Greens. That's obviously where a lot of the new sentiment, particularly from left-wing voters, comes for, for independence because they just see people like that as, as, um, as, as you know, incredibly out of touch with the world they want to see and the future they, they want to see for Scotland um, and Europe and the world. So, um, you know, that will suit Nicola Sturgeon, this kind of stalemate of the Tories saying no, 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 um, it's not an uncomfortable position for Sturgeon to begin with. What is uncomfortable, of course, is there's more people on the independence side than in the SNP who are quite frustrated and impatient. So there will be pressure to push forward with a, a unilateral independence bill um, after the COVID crisis, to use their, their terminology. Um, so that is um, likely to end up in the uh, sort of UK Supreme Court judgment where the, the legality of Scottish legislation would be 
would be tested. And so that's likely to take place, I would say, in the course of this parliament. Whether we will actually see uh, an independence referendum, I have my doubts um, in the next five years, because as we say, the, the SNP haven't quite put their money where their mouth is in terms of borders, trade, relationship with Europe, macroeconomic policy and currency. Um, and I think if they were really gearing up for a referendum in the near future, that work would already be ongoing. Um, so that being said, there's there's a challenge within the SNP about where they take this mandate, where they take this democratic case, because obviously they need to actually build a coalition and a consensus outside their own party. And if I were Nicola Sturgeon at this point, I mean, I don't I don't want to ventriloquize, but I wouldn't want an independence referendum because, I mean, for me, I don't, I don't want to get into the details of this, but it, it seems that actually there are some real problems in the argument for independence when it comes to borders, when it comes to currencies. The argument for the right to have a vote is much easier to make, much stronger. So, so long as the Conservatives refuse to let the SNP hold one, Nicola Sturgeon can, without taking any of the risks that come with an independence referendum, still maintain her role as a leader of this national project, which is our right to self-determine. It seems almost win-win for her, for uh, the Conservatives to not give her a referendum. Do you think I'm being overly cynical in, in getting inside her mind? Do you think actually her number one priority is an independent Scotland and that is what she will be fighting for? Well, within the debate here, we call it gradualism. So you say not now, but when the time's right, when there's a, a national consensus on the question, like there was in 97 for devolution, that's when you put the question. Um, and there's some in the people who were more critical of that approach um, within and out with the SNP, who are also nationalists, were, have been routed in, in this election. You know, Alex Salmond and, and his posse have been sunk, really. So it strengthens... Nicola Sturgeon's hand on that point. I think the the work is there. The answers can be found if they put the effort in and the resource to, to working on the difficult questions, particularly when the, the alternative seems to be unending Tory rule um, from Westminster, which I think is, is more unpopular than the prospect of perhaps some customs friction or a currency transition. That's difficult. Posh Scotland is particularly fear of, you know, the questions around that about what happens to their their second homes and their their mortgages and their investments and their guilt funds and all that kind of stuff. But I think, you know, the case is there to be made if the SNP are, are brave enough and, and sees a sense of urgency. Whether they will or not, I'm unconvinced that they will within the next five years. Michael Gray, thank you so much for joining us this evening. All super interesting. We'll definitely be talking to you soon because this is definitely going to be, as I say, one of the big issues um, in, in UK politics over the next five years. There were actually suggestions that what the Tories would do is almost call Nicola Sturgeon's bluff and say, well, you can have a referendum, but have it straight away. And they thought that actually she'd probably lose that. What I'm hearing now is that actually the position from Westminster, from Boris Johnson, is going to be not you can never have a referendum, we're ruling it out, but to constantly say not now, not now, not now, and always find different excuses to not have it now. So at the moment, it will be not in the coronavirus recovery, then it will be not in the economic recovery that we're going to have after coronavirus, then it will be, you know, whatever different excuse they can find. So it's always to say, you know, we're not against the principle of a second referendum, but you'll have to wait a little bit. In some ways, it will reflect their strategy, actually, I think, strangely enough, to Jeremy Corbyn after 2017. You know, if you said to somebody in 2017, 2018, that actually, no, Jeremy Corbyn won't be the leader of the Labour Party after 2019. Labour are actually going to get decimated the next general election. People said, what? This, is the, this new zeitgeist is Labour on the rise. The Tories are, 
are falling to pieces. And I think, generally speak, speaking in politics, if you wait long enough, the opposition will make a mistake. And the Tories don't need Scotland. They don't need to win a single seat in Scotland as it stands to win Westminster majorities. So they're very happy for the SNP to burn themselves out on this. And I think actually, you know, we, we'll touch on it somewhat, but I think the, the inability for Labour to make inroads in Scotland, I think, is also a major part of that calculation. And they'll say, you know what? The fact that Scotland is completely out of Labour's orbit, Labour has to extend a certain amount of political capital just to constantly... This this whole debate is really torturing Labour in Scotland. It means they can't really get any seats up there. Let's just, this status quo suits the Tories very well. Now, I'm not saying that's a reason to drop independence among Scottish nationalists, but this suits them very well. And like you say, I think that holding position argument will be the one that they adopt. You know, often in politics, long-term solutions are just short-term solutions. You know, you, you, you constantly top up which is what the Tories are doing on, on Scottish independence. And it can work. That can work. That's not just a sticking plaster. That can work. You know, a war of attrition uh, can be effective. And ultimately, the SNP, are they as powerful an organisation when Sturgeon steps down? Will they still have this in five, ten years? I mean, I, I, I would struggle to think that is the case. I think the SNP will be the biggest party in Scotland for a very long time. But I think they're going to they're gonna struggle to find a leader as exceptionally talented as, as Sturgeon. So I think, like you say, They'll try and kick this into the long grass. I don't know the sort of legal avenues that the SNP could pursue in terms of, you know, could you have some kind of uh, instructive referendum in terms of, you know, at least testing the water. Of course, if you lose that, the real downside is that if you can't lose some ersatz version of the real thing, well, then why do the real thing at all? I think it's absolutely fascinating. But then again, politics right now is moving so quickly in the UK that I think, you know, the situation could be very different in six months time. Let's move on to the English news um, we have today. The The main narrative we had yesterday was failure, 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 failure for the Labour Party. And across England, Labour have lost massively and the Conservatives have gained massively. But there are two mayoral races which will give the Labour Party some hope. And this is because there are the two mayoral races which they have gained from the Conservatives. So the first is the West of England, so that includes Bristol and Bath and surrounding areas. Um, so that was held by a Conservative. This time around, it was won by Labour and by a fairly decent margin, in fact. So let's go to those results. In the first round, um, the Labour candidate, who was Dan Norris, got 33.4%, which was up 11.2% on the most recent election. The Conservative candidate got 28.6%, which was up slightly um, on the previous election when it comes to the first round. The Greens scored very well, 21.7% in the first round, and the Lib Dems were on 16.3% down ever so slightly on the previous election. In the second round, though, it looks very, very good for the Labour Party, 59.5% to 40.5%, um, which is a pretty big margin. You know, considering it was it was held by the Conservatives. Um, the other big gain for the Labour Party, um, also in the south of England, this time in the south east instead of the southwest, was Cambridgeshire and Peterborough. Um, that mayoralty was held um, by the Conservatives. This time around, Labour won it on the second round. So we can go to the results in the first round. The Conservatives there got 41%, which was up three from the previous election. The Labour Party got 33%, which was up 14 on the previous election. And the Lib Dems got 27, which was up three. Um, but then in the second round, which is what counts, um, Labour won by 51% to 49%. So the slimmest of margins. Um, I've seen people suggest that potentially this means 
um, second round voting is going to be on its way out. The, the moment it, it hands the mayoralty to Labour is the moment it's going to get abolished. Um, this seat was previously won by the Tory by 57% in the second round. So close, but not that close. Um, Aaron, I want your take on these two wins for Labour, very much going against the grain um, in the rest of the country, and especially mm. on Dan Norris, actually, because I know you weren't a fan of Dan Norris, but that's a fairly impressive result, isn't it? Yeah, I think you have to, with the Dan Norris result, you have to understand that the predecessor, the, the Conservative uh, Mayor for West of England, Tim Bowles, was completely absent. You know, if you want if you want a kind of the mirror image of Ben Housh and what he was doing in the Northeast, this was somebody who just was completely absent, didn't really do very much, was really underwhelming. The, the Tories were, were running a different candidate this time. You know, if they'd run, if they'd run with the incumbent, it, it would have been a disaster. So Labour were looking to win this. And of course, Labour only lost this by very narrow margin uh, the, the previous time. And like you say, I'm not particularly enamoured with Dan Norris as a candidate. You know, he supported the Iraq war. He supported tuition fees. He voted against an investigation into the Iraq war. He was embroiled in the expenses scandal. Uh, when he was asked about the potential franchising of bringing local bus services back under public control, like in Manchester, he, he said he would, quote, consult himself uh, all the other candidates, which is super interesting, the Lib Dem, the Green Tory, all said they would do, uh, they would favour a solution that looks like what's happened, happening in Manchester when it comes to buses. So, in one sense, that's a really amazing reflection of the sort of hegemonisation of, of of the centre left, the left arguments on public services. On the other hand, actually, well, Labour's just got a guy in this role who wasn't really on board with those things. So, it'll be super interesting. It could be that Dan Norris, who's very much from the right of the party comes into the job and everybody wants to be popular, they want to be re-elected, he might go in that direction. And that might be a really instructive story about what happens next to the Labour right, centre-right over the next five, ten years. Because frankly, they've got no policies, no ideas, and the things they do come up with are deeply unpopular, as we've seen over the last 24 hours. They're not particularly good at winning things. Dan Norris has a really good opportunity because I think he's kind of won... By hook or by crook, he's kind of won because, you know, he was very fortunate with what's happened with the Tory over the last four years. Very different to the West Midlands with Andy Street. Very different to what's going on in Teesside, the Tees Valley Mayor. So let's see. It's a shame there's not a better candidate, but, you know, he may surprise us. And it is the big story here, though. I mean, you know, the big picture, this is a realignment whereby Labour are doing better in southern areas with lots of graduates and really falling behind in some northern areas, obviously not the northwest, which we're going to talk about in, in a moment, but in the northeast and, and, and the Midlands, um, yeah. they're doing terribly. Is that what's going on here? It's just a shift in Britain's electoral geography? Well, somewhat. I mean, you know, Bristol is one of the most progressive cities in the country. It's got four Labour MPs. Uh, it's also got a big green presence. It's got a big green presence on the council. Uh, you've obviously got Marvin Rees, mayor of Bristol, Labour mayor. You know, the, his progressive credentials can be questioned, but he certainly, you know, his, he rhetorically presents himself as a as a, as a progressive, as somebody on the centre, more the centre than the centre-left, but still, you know, he's not, a, he wouldn't say he's a Blairite. Uh, so I think that's absolutely true. And clearly, I think Dan Norris, I haven't seen the breakdown of the votes, but Dan Norris has won this because of Bristol. Uh, Andy Street won the West Midlands, but Liam Byrne did win in Birmingham. Uh, he could have won bigger. We'll talk about that shortly. Uh, and it's a similar phenomenon here. So you've got this big metro mayor area uh, and Labour actually doing really well in the city. So I, th I think that's correct. In Stroud, actually, in Stroud Council, again, the Greens made really big inroads. And you can see you can see how the Greens in the West of England basically become the second party to Labour with the West of England mayor, with Bristol itself, with Stroud. And, and if Labour go in a right wing direction over the next four or five years under Keir Starmer, 
let's hit the last four or five months at this point, uh, you, you can see how the Greens can really build on what they've already done. One other super important contest. While across much of England, Labour suffered massive losses, the party tightened its grip in greater Manchester. The Labour mayor at the metro area, Andy Burnham, increased his already massive majority from 63 to 67% of first preference votes. And we can have a look at the results now. So Burnham there on 67.3%. That's up 3.9 on the previous election. And the Conservatives, who are <laughs> the closest competition, score less than 20%. You're also seeing not a green surge like you are elsewhere in the country, especially in, in London. The Greens are up two, um, but still only on 4.4%. So complete hegemony um, for Labour and Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester. Um, let's take a look at part of his acceptance speech. My main thanks, though, go to the wonderful, wonderful people of Greater Manchester. I value every single vote you have given me. I know that people who normally support other parties have voted for me. I will always remember that and respect it. I will continue to be a voice for all people and all communities. I will continue to adopt a place first, not party first approach. Where the government gets it right and treats us fairly, I will work with them, but where they don't, I will challenge them for you as forcefully as I can. Greater Manchester expects nothing less. This vote sends a clear message to all Westminster parties. People are buying in to English devolution. They are telling you to deliver more of it, not less. That was a pretty feisty speech there from Andy Burnham. In stark contrast, I think, from anything we've heard from Keir Starmer over the previous days, you know, really speaking out in quite strong terms against elements of, of Westminster politics, strongly in favour of, of, of devolution. And obviously, I mean, the bigger picture than what he said in the speech is is how Andy Burnham has behaved over the previous, over his previous term, but especially over the previous 12 months. He's been very willing to stand up and face down Boris Johnson on questions of values, right, on questions of fairness during the pandemic. And that's not just saying I have values, it's actually, you know, embodying them, living them out. Now, I said that was in contrast to Keir Starmer and combative towards Boris Johnson. Burnham was also pretty explicit, actually, um, in in critiquing Starmer's Labour Party um, or the Labour Party based in London. He said it was London-centric when speaking to the BBC. He's lost an emotional connection with people, and that's strongest in the areas that were previously most loyal to us. And there's no point in glossing it. That is the facts of the matter. And, you know, it, it has deep roots. It's happened not just under um, recent leaders. It goes back to the early 2000s. This has been something that's happening since then. And they, they have to make some pretty fundamental uh, changes to try and win it back. And one of the ways back is more English devolution. Build from the bottom up. Connect with people in a different way. And I'm getting a bit fed up of saying this to them, but they really do now need to listen and make real changes and, and end the, the London-centric Labour Party that I have been in all my life. Quite a strong challenge there from Andy Burnham. He also didn't rule out a leadership challenge. He said he's not looking at it in the short term. In the longer term, he would be potentially interested in becoming Labour leader in the distant future if the, the National Labour Party or the UK-wide Labour Party asked him for his 
help. Um, Aaron, what did you make of that? I mean, there were some shots fired, weren't there? Yeah, I thought it was super interesting. I thought, firstly, you know, he's totally right about English devolution. He's totally right. But that's got nothing. You said values. It's not about values. I think people just want political power closer to them, right? I don't think that's a value thing. I think and that kind of transcends mm-hmm. values. Um, it's it's the quintessence of democratic politics. Unless you think that, you know, there's absolutely no democratic tradition on the centre-right, I, I think, which I think is clearly stupid. You know, unless you think anything beyond, uh, you know, left-wing politics is fascism. Uh, I, I, I think that's kind of errant. I mean, something like a Paul Mason would say, it's now about values and it's now about progressive versus regressive people. And what's happening with Starmer is because he's not chosen to be with the most progressive people. It's all about values. And actually, Andy Burnham is saying, no, it's about political control being as close and as accountable to people as possible. And my three priorities, what are they? They're not values. They're very material. Jobs, housing, public transport. And that's precisely the kind of lucid material offer that we're not getting from Keir Starmer's Labour. So yes, it is kind of about values. You want to, you want to call it that. But I think there's, there's a, something a bit more substantial going on in terms of the context of, uh, of English devolution. We're not just going to look at Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester because there were, I mean, a number of examples of Labour doing very well and a number of examples of, 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 the, of the Labour candidates who've done very well speaking out um, against the current direction of the Labour Party. So first in Preston, where we've spoken a lot about the Preston model, community wealth building, Labour retained all of their seats. Um, and in Salford, Paul Dennett, who's the city mayor, a self-avowed socialist, um, won in the first round with 59%, which was up from 49% in 2016. So a very, very successful result there. Dennett released a statement um, after that that victory was announced and it contained, I mean, a very explicit swipe at Keir Starmer. Let's take a look at what he said. Red wall voters have not moved away from the Labour Party. The Labour Party has moved away from them. I ask Keir and our leaders to look not only to Salford, but to Greater Manchester under the leadership of Andy Burnham, where our losses have been more limited, and also to examples from progressive councils across the country where our fortunes have not been so bad, to Mark Drakeford's successes in the Welsh Senate, to Matt Brown's continued successes in Preston. There is a path Labour can take which unites our traditional voters with young and new voters. It is a path which isn't ashamed of our party's radical roots, which taps into our history and tradition, which puts forward a progressive and dynamic vision for a new and inclusive economy in the future. It's a path which is socialist in its core. The centre ground no longer exists as it once did. The public now expect us to pick a side and articulate a bold, ambitious and progressive vision for the future, which tackles poverty, inequality whilst placing the needs of working people and families at its core. I mean, the Socialist Campaign Group have been fairly disappointing, I think we can sort of say in the first year of, of Keir Starmer's leadership. Do you think in potentially the northwest of England, we're seeing a bit of a power base which can more effectively challenge Keir Starmer than, than has been done in, in Westminster so far? I think it's exactly what we're seeing, yeah. You look at Salford, you look at uh, you know Manchester Metro Mayor, you look at Preston, and there's clearly something there. There's a, there's a concrete, substantial policy offer that is in no way attached to... I, I, Andy Burnham is attacking London-centric politics. To be clear, he's not attacking people in London. You know, you have huge child poverty in Newham and so forth. He's talking about this obsessive political merry-go-round we see between the media, between consultants, elected officials in Westminster, sort of SW1 cliques. And, you know, obviously the Northwest is very far away from that. And who was the, who was the Labour politician, the, the MP at Westminster, who was most closely aligned with that, but also geographically most proximate to that? It was, of course, Rebecca Long-Bailey, uh, who ran for the Labour leadership in 2020. So 
I think that's right. I think we're going to see a sort of disparate center of power now away from Keir Starmer. By the way, you know, Wigan Council is another one. I'm not familiar with how they kept all their seats. They've done very well, Wigan Council. And, and it has to be said, you know, local elections are often very different reasons why people are being elected or re-elected to the national picture. Uh, but, but clearly people are doing good locally based activism in these places. And, you know, let's see, Keir Starmer might fall out with Lisa Nandy next. And you do have these places very far away from London, which have a heritage, a socialist heritage, and which are doing quite well. Uh, and, and uh, you know, you've just lost in, in Hartlepool. It's probably not smart to suddenly break visibly with those parts of the party which are doing particularly well, which actually, when it comes to a kind of a, a sort of cultural set of values and story, are far better aligned with the voters you've just lost than you yourself. So if, if Starmer wants to go to war with, you know, this kind of Lancashire socialism, good luck to him because he's going to lose and only accelerate his demise even more rapidly. But you're right. I think you compare what they're doing now to the socialist campaign group. It's like chalk and cheese. All right. Let's very quickly go through London. Sadiq Khan is, is going to win, um, but it's a pretty disappointing result for him. We were sort of expecting it to be overwhelming um, because he was thought to be quite popular. Sean Bailey was a terrible candidate, but actually um, it's going to be a closer contest than the contest between Zach Goldsmith and Sadiq Khan before Sadiq Khan was the incumbent and before you know Labour became so absolutely dominant in, in London as they have been for the last couple of years. The current standing 41% for Labour, 35 for the Conservatives, 8% for the Greens and 4% for the Lib Dems. A, a reasonable night for the Greens, um, but very disappointing for Sadiq Khan. That will be four points lower um, than he got in 2016. And basically, I mean, everything really should have been in his favour. This, I think, you know, it's not a major upset. I think this could be interesting because Sadiq Khan, in my view, has been probably one of the most disappointing politicians in the country. He's got the biggest bully pulpit other than the prime minister, probably. You know, you're mayor of London, one of uh, one of the big global cities. You should be out there every day talking about affordable housing, talking about climate change, talking about whatever, you know, really making your mark. He's completely invisible. You know, I don't know anything about Sadiq Khan apart from that he quite liked Remain and didn't like Donald Trump. I mean, you know, in this day and age, that is that is not enough to inspire anyone to go out and vote for you. Um, I asked uh, a housemate today, you know, do you remember any, what do you think Sadiq Khan's done? You know, they vote, you know, everyone, everyone I know voted Labour either one or two. So oh, I can't, can't think of a simple thing. What about Boris Johnson bikes? You know, at least Boris Johnson had bikes. They were actually Ken Livingston's idea, but he was a, <laughs> Boris Johnson is a, is a clever PR guy. Sadiq Khan, nothing. I can't name a single achievement he's had. One, it, it goes against this idea that incumbents always do well. And two, I mean, to lose votes in London right now, that is, I mean, embarrassing, really, isn't it? It's deeply embarrassing. Deeply, deeply embarrassing. You know, I, I, at the top of the show, we said whether it's Labour or benefiting or, or the Tories or the Lib Dems, the Greens or the SNP or, or Welsh Labour, you know, people seem to be responding well to political competence or an emotional connection to a sense of place. And Sadiq Khan is, is the mayor of London. So compare what he's doing to Ben Houchin and Teesside. Ben Houchin and Teesside just won 73% of the vote. That's what, if, if Sadiq Khan was doing his job, that's what he would be getting in London, 73% of the vote, right? Or, or if you look at Andy Street in the West Midlands, in the West Midlands, Andy Street is, is doing better than Sadiq Khan is in London. Okay, I, on the second round, he may do much, I think he probably will do much better, but on, the, on that first round, you know, that's, that should be deeply concerning for Labour. Uh, if you look at 
if you look at Andy Burnham, you know, the same story. And I think, I think, you know, I think Sadiq Khan's clearly going to win this, but his political band is really tainted. You know, of all Labour's mayors, in an, in an environment where it's all about local politics, are you standing up for people against the sort of, the, the 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 ferocious nature of either are you standing up against Westminster government, the Tory government, or are you sufficiently well connected with them, like Andy Street, like Ben Houchen, to get us goodies, right? Though you want to be on one of those two things, otherwise you're not going to be elected as a as a as a mayoral sort of uh, as a as a metro mayor or a city mayor. And Sadiq Khan's doing really badly, and I, I and he's doing badly probably against the worst candidate the Tories could have chosen, the worst candidate I've seen in a major role for the Conservative Party. This is very much a protest vote against Sadiq Khan. And it's embarrassing. I mean, it's, it's a humiliation. This is as close as, as a humiliation you could get while still winning. You know, I had somebody send me a message as a source. They said, oh, my God, if Sadiq Khan, if he doesn't win, that means I can't go to the New Year's Eve fireworks anymore. You know, I won't be able to see the EU flag on New Year's Eve. I won't be able to see 4K well-documented videos of Sadiq Khan saying London's open. That's all he does. He uses the mayoral budget for PR to enhance his, his political brand. He's been playing on easy mode and he's really let working class Londoners down and, and they're showing they're showing what they think about him. And the response from the Labour Party to say, oh, you're you know, you've let us down by not voting Labour. This was the same man, by the way, who said directly after the 2019 general election, we deserve to lose. Well, you know what, Sadiq Khan, you deserve to be run close by the biggest shambles the Tories could have <laughs> chosen as they can in London. You deserve this because you've done nothing for years except PR and blowing smoke up your own ass. Oh, he's talking mm, about I mean, rent cap now. He's been in the job for four years. There's a housing crisis in London. Nobody can afford to, to buy a house. Many, many people are struggling to rent homes. I left the city because we, we well, one of the reasons we left is we couldn't afford to live there anymore. I lived there 15 years. I moved 12 times in 12 years. And this man, his priority is public relations, getting nice haircuts to look the business in these, in these, in these Twitter videos. Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, it looks like this is going to be the ideal result for progressives because, I mean, I'd be very, very depressed to live um, for four years under um, the Conservatives candidate, <laughs> under Bailey. But at the same time, I think Sadiq Khan has had an easy ride because people have assumed he's popular and people have been quite um, reluctant to to attack him, to point out that you know he hasn't done anything. And I think this means that there will actually be a really, really strong campaign next time around to have a proper progressive um, who will stand and represent Londoners, but also be a real platform for left-wing politics in this country. So a damaged Khan who remains mayor is, for me, a good outcome. All right, let's end it there. Um, Aaron Bastani, it's been an absolute pleasure. Two days in a row, a privilege. My pleasure, Mike. We, I just want to give a quick shout out to uh, uh, the activists in Worthing. They had, they've never, in Worthing, they've never had a single county councillor before. Ever, ever, ever. They've won five. Uh, up until four years ago, they hadn't won a single uh, borough councillor for more than 40 years. They now have 10. Tomorrow, they might be taking that council into no overall control. So there are some amazing stories from, from Labour side. None of it has anything to do with the national leadership. It's all down to local activists on the ground. Long may that continue. Solidarity to people out there, but particularly those fantastic activists in Worthing. Mm, a brilliant place to end the evening we'll be back on monday thank you so much for watching tonight for all of your support you've been watching tisky sour on navara media good night this broadcast is brought to you by navara media go to navaramedia.com support